Our reading this morning is taken from Luke chapter 19, verses 1 to 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was so short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. But Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. It's great to be with you. Let me add my welcome to that you've already received. Uh, it's a wonderful time to be joining in the life of the church. If it's your first time here or you've just started coming, a uh, very warm welcome from me too. And we're in a series, Holy Here, looking at what holiness looks like in our world today. And today we want to look at Jesus. What does it mean that Jesus is holy? Jesus at his birth, the angels, at his conception even, the angels say he is the holy one to be born. At his death, the Roman centurion says, this man has done nothing wrong. Uh, when he was doing his ministry, demons would scream out, I know who you are, the holy one of God. His friends said, this person is without sin. He was called the holy and the righteous one. And as we think about what it means to live a holy life, with all the complexity and challenge and opportunity of this cultural moment. Jesus is not just our example, he is our source, he's our power, he is the very definition of holiness. The more like Jesus we become, the more holy we will become. Jesus is holiness made flesh. He is the person we need to look to. And the first thing we see in this passage is that holiness gets close. Now, Jesus consistently messes with people's categories. If Jesus has never surprised you or shocked you or done something you didn't expect, I wonder if you actually have met him. Because all the time he was messing with people's categories and he messed with people's understanding of holiness. Holiness was generally understood by the religious leaders at that time as precise compliance with religious laws and regulations and severe separation from anything that might be sinful, anything that might contaminate someone who was trying to be holy. So in order to keep the compliance with the rules and to be perfectly clean, it was necessarily to be completely separate and to keep distance. And we know Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it, to complete it. We know he had absolute dedication to his father, absolute devotion. He had complete obedience all his life. And because of that, there were times when Jesus was willing to break religious rules in order to advance God's kingdom. 
He healed people on the Sabbath that upset people. His disciples picked grain on the Sabbath that upset people. But what most upset people in Jesus' life was the company he kept and the words he spoke. Because it was assumed that a religious leader should only hang out with other important religious people. And a really, truly holy person would surround themselves with other holy, moral, upright, perfect people. People with pretty perfect lives. And Jesus was repeatedly criticised for failing to do that and sometimes doing the opposite. In Luke 15, it said, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, it's a great word, mutter, muttered and said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so the criticism was that if you were around people, associated people, worked alongside people, spoke to people, ate with people who weren't holy, weren't moral, weren't living up to the standard, you probably weren't holy yourself. Because why would you do that? There was such a risk of you being contaminated, their unholiness might rub off on you and it wouldn't be good for your reputation. What they're saying is that Jesus was probably not holy himself because look at the people he hangs out with. And this idea, it's the idea of taint, really, is very powerful in our culture today, very powerful in kind of social discourse today. Not only do you have to have all the right ideas, all the right morals, all the right standards, all the right opinions, all the right perspectives, but you're not allowed to associate with anyone who might not have a right idea, a right opinion, a right perspective, or a right moral standard. You have to put clear blue water between you and anyone else who might not be right or right thinking. And you have to condemn anyone who makes a mistake because otherwise you yourself might be tainted by your association with them. It's very similar in 2023 to how it was in 33. Not that much has changed. Elizabeth Brunig, who writes for the New York Times, said, there's something unsustainable about an environment that demands constant atonement, but actively disdains the very idea of forgiveness. It's just unsustainable. It's exhausting. Because one wrong step anywhere can be the end of everything. And in the midst of a very similar culture to the one we face today, Jesus comes as a breath of fresh air like oxygen in a very stifling place. And he enters Jericho and he sees Zacchaeus and he knows what he's like. He knows he's a collaborator with the Roman Empire. He knows he's built his business and all his money on, you know, by taking advantage of his fellow people. He knows that he's profiting from an oppressive regime. He knows that Zacchaeus is despised by all moral people in the city. And yet Jesus says in front of everyone, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. Crazy. Crazy. Shocking. Completely subversive. I mean, you can imagine people thinking, what? Of all the people in this city, of all the houses, all the places to stay. He's staying with Zacchaeus. Why? And they begin to mutter again. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. 
And you can see them very quickly writing Jesus off. See, I find it fascinating. I, I had to catch a bus and a few trains this week, and uh, because of various train strikes and things like that, everything was quite tight, and um, one of them was quite long, and so I couldn't even get my laptop out, so I was forced to read my Bible, and, um, and so uh, <laughs> almost feels like a, a kind of countercultural step to kind of pull my quite large Bible out in the middle of a train and start reading it. I could see, and also there was like people here and people here and people here and people here, and I was kind of like going like this and reading through it. I think they thought I might not have been well, but I. <laughs> But I actually found myself, I just kept reading. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, reading through the Gospels. And the thing I was most struck by was how often Jesus does this. He goes and puts himself in very difficult situations in the midst of people that no one expects him to be near. And it unsettles people and he gets criticism for it. You know, Jesus in his holiness moves towards those who desperately need God. You know, Jesus' holiness doesn't mean he stands at a distance. It doesn't mean he separates himself from people. It means he gets close to those who desperately are aware of how much they need God. And he upsets the moral and he's welcomed by those whose lives are messy and who have made lots of mistakes. Jesus wasn't worried about being contaminated by what was unholy. His holiness was not a fragile, small, tiny thing that needed to be isolated, preserved and protected. Jesus' holiness was an explosive, dynamic, powerful thing. Jesus didn't come to build a monastery in the desert away from people, to keep holiness in a box. Jesus came to reclaim every inch of God's world as holy. Holiness was the very thing that moved Jesus into the midst of those who needed to know God. And I find that so encouraging personally. I find it so encouraging because it reminds me that that's what he's done for me. And I never want to lose sight of that. That Jesus didn't stand far off when I was messing up my life and making all sorts of mistakes and didn't deserve a single word from him. But he came close to me and drew alongside me and wanted to get to know me and wanted to redeem me and wanted to help me. But I find it really helpful just because if we're honest, this is how we spend most of our lives. I'll never forget when I started my first job. You know, I, I was training as a barrister. 200 people apply for you know, three places and then you do like a years long apprenticeship. And then of the 12 people in the apprenticeship, they might give a job to one person. And after a year of this kind of like the apprentice meets the hunger games, you know, I, get this kind of, I get this phone call to say, you've got a job. And, I start, and who do you share good news with? You share it with your families, obviously. You know, I phoned Beth, my wife, and then I wanted to phone my family. I don't know how your family are, but I'm one of five, and my family have always you know, taken it as their responsibility to encourage me, but not in the usual way. Um, encourage me to stay grounded and humble. And, and, uh, <laughs> and so I phoned first my brother, and I phoned him up, and I was like, Paul, I've got great news. He said, what is it? I said, I've been, I've been given a new job. He's like, how much are you going to get paid? And... Uh, <laughs> And I said, well, Paul, it's, 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 uh, I, I, it doesn't really have a salary. And I said, how can it not have a salary? Every job has a salary. I said, yeah, well, well technically, um, I'm not employed by them because that's not how it works. He said, Steve, how can you have a new job if we're not employed? That's basic law. I should be the barrister. And that, that was the first conversation, so I hung up there, encouraged. And then I phoned, phoned my mum, and I said, mum, great news, I've got a job. 
oh, right. I said, yeah, I'm really excited. She said, Steve, I just want to check something. I said, yeah. She said, you're not going to be representing criminals, are you? I said, well, I'm going to be representing people accused of crimes. Are any of them criminals? I don't know, Mum. That's why I'm representing them. She said, so some of the people you represent might be criminals. I said, they might. She said, I'm not happy about that. I was like, oh. So I came away from the slightly discouraged about the career path I'd chosen. And to be honest, it was a little bit tricky at times. You know, when you're a criminal barrister, you're spending a lot of time with people whose lives are a bit messy, who have made wrong decisions, who sometimes, you know, their unholiness spills out of them. It's complex, who have made lots of mistakes. And that's just the other barristers. There's also the people you're actually representing. And there were times when I think, is this the sort of place Jesus really wants people to work? And I find this so encouraging. Jesus' holiness moves him to the midst of people that really need to know God's mercy. It's true when you're working in a hospital. It's true when you're running your business. It's true when you're helping startups. It's true when you're helping people understand new ideas. That's true when you're working in whatever context God has positioned you. It's true when you're trying to raise your family. It feels like you're holding it together. Jesus' holiness did not separate himself from people, but moved him into the midst of people. Because he knew he wanted his holiness to rub off on them. Yes, it's difficult at times. Yes, at times I felt that they're... They were rubbing off on me more than I was rubbing off on them. But was I in the wrong place? No. Does the fact you follow Jesus mean you'll be placed in companies and businesses and roles and jobs where sometimes it feels uncomfortable? Yes. Is Jesus passionate about you being there? Yes. Will he sustain you while you're there? Yes. Because that's exactly what he did. Jesus got close. You know, holiness is expansive, it's not reductive. People always assume that to be set apart for God, you needed to be separate from the world. And Jesus said, I am set apart for my Father and I'm going to be completely immersed in this world because I want to see it transformed. I want to see it made holy. When you look at Jesus, holiness means you get close. But the second thing we see in this passage is that holiness means you will be different. Jesus didn't just mess with people's understanding of holiness. He subverts our understanding of love. I don't know about you, but sometimes I assume that love means the unconditional affirmation of every part of people's lives. Jesus was completely loving. Love made flesh. But that's not how he lived. I sometimes assume that for Jesus to be compelling to a rising generation, for him to have any chance of a hearing, we have to make him just like everyone else. Make sure there's no friction. Remove all the bits of Jesus that might be, un- might be controversial. Jesus lived a completely pure life. He never sinned. He never spoke unkind words. He never cheated. He never lied. He always cared for the poor. He always cared for the vulnerable. He stood in harm's way to protect those who'd lived sinful lives and at risk of being persecuted by other people or at risk of harm. He protected those who'd lived sinful lives from the mob who wanted to condemn them. And yet Jesus was uncompromising in calling people to turn from sin and to turn to God. 
He came to bring freedom. He didn't want to see anyone who bore the image of God being held captive by sin. His first sermon, the time has come. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. He said to Zacchaeus, effectively, you're lost and I've come to seek and save you. Jesus' words were sometimes heard like words of beauty and truth and freedom and joy. Some people delighted to hear him speak. Almost too good to believe and they rejoiced and celebrated just to hear him and to see what he did. And sometimes his words were heard and they caused fury and outrage and people who heard them wanted to kill him. Yet everything he said was motivated by love and it was completely true. He spoke with authority and tenderness, with compassion and conviction and his life was utterly distinct from those around him. Otherwise, why would people have been interested at all? It's fascinating. You know, Zacchaeus climbs the tree just to get a look at him. He's heard enough about this guy. He's willing to climb a tree. Probably a sticky, messy tree, knowing the trees in that city. To just have a glance of him as he walks by. Not because he's the same as everyone else he's ever met, because he might be different from everyone else he's ever met, and he might know a better way to live. I find it fascinating at the moment that I don't want to take it for granted so many people are encountering Jesus in our church. I find it deeply moving to hear Aura's story. Aura's been a Christian three months. She's holier than me. Tend to just say, watch that again. Come Holy Spirit. It's what Jesus can do in someone's life. When they see him as he is. I actually, I'm, I, one of my convictions in life is that it's possible to see Jesus as he truly is and walk away unchanged. And he goes to Zacchaeus' house and Zacchaeus spends time talking with him. And then Zacchaeus stands up and says to Jesus, to the Lord, look Lord. Here and now, I give half my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I'll pay them back four times the amount. I mean, Jesus spent an afternoon, a few hours with Jesus. Zacchaeus spends a few hours with Jesus, and he is utterly transformed. Calls Jesus Lord, and then he makes these massive life decisions. It's like Jesus' holiness has rubbed off on him. He's seen something in Jesus that meant he wanted to change massive elements of his life in a costly, sacrificial way. I mean, half his possessions is a lot. Imagine going back to all the people you've cheated and said, so sorry I cheated. You did? When? Oh, a year ago, I didn't tell you, so sorry. It's a bit embarrassing now. Can I give you four times the amount? You know, what? They're complicated conversations to have. That's not an easy thing to do. When holiness comes, when people are captivated by Jesus, doesn't just impact a part of their life, it impacts all of their life. Jesus doesn't just come into the hallway of people's lives, he comes into every single room in the house. And what I love is he's not just changing Zacchaeus on the outside, he's changing his core motivations. 
I mean, presumably Zacchaeus was motivated by money. That's why he was willing to compromise. That's why he was willing to go along with the Roman Empire. That's why he was willing to sell his neighbours and his friends short and make money on the top of the taxes. Driven by money. But his desires are reordered by a couple of hours with Jesus. That's deep transformation. Be different. How you live, how you speak. It's challenging, we need wisdom. But I'm so grateful for the people that have challenged me. Bonhoeffer said, nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the rebuke which calls those in the Christian community back from the path of sin. And that is what I have found in my life. When I was 17 years old, someone called Becky, Becky, challenged me. She said, you're keeping your faith in a box. You need to be open about it. No one even knows you're a Christian. Think you were taking drugs the way you keep it behind closed doors. I was like, who does she think she is? So for about a week, I hated her. But she was right. When I was 20 years old, um, a mentor said to me, Steve, I don't think you've got a problem with alcohol, but you treat alcohol exactly the same way as all your mates treat alcohol. What would it look like for you to give it up for three months just to show them that you're different? I said, that's a really bad idea. I said, if I stop drinking alcohol, then they'll think I'm condemning them for drinking alcohol, and then they won't find Jesus. Um, <laughs> he was like, really, Steve? <laughs> God needs your beer. I was like, well, you know. So I did it. Had a huge impact on my life and my friends' lives. When I was 28, uh, my, my vicar took me to one side very gently and um, in the kindest possible way said, Steve, I think you need to be more careful about how you use your speech. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, you, said people actually really listen to what you say. She needs to really think uh, before you speak sometimes. I came away, I thought, can that be right? And I didn't really listen to it. So he did the most passive-aggressive thing you can do as a Christian. He bought me a book about it. And um, <laughs> it's like buying someone deodorant for Christmas. It's like, <laughs> R.T. Kendall, your words have power. I read every single word, completely transformed my life. I had to repent. He was completely right. So grateful for the way he did it. When we're captivated by Jesus, it will shift things in our lives and it will make us different. I was so struck, I was at a conference recently, I heard Anthony Tan speak. Entrepreneur, making a massive impact in Asia Pacific, building a company that tries to ensure that women who might be vulnerable can get cabs places and stay, stay safe. He was asked the question, what difference does your faith make to your day-to-day life as a business person? He said, my faith is my competitive advantage. It gives me integrity. It gives me resilience. It reinforces my values. Be different. You know, we have to be wise about it. We don't want to go around being weird for its own sake. I'm not saying you should play the tambourine by the water cooler at work. But we have a moment in our culture where I think the culture is running out of ideas, where there's a whole generation who have tried following uninhibited desire 
and they're saying, maybe this isn't all it's cracked up to be. Dating culture is a dumpster fire. It's a nightmare. Someone wrote in Vogue recently, what passes as sex positivity is actually a culture of masochism disguised as hedonism. In Vogue. So many people getting hurt. But there's a better way. People desire for something different. I think lots of people are saying that the modern ways aren't working. Are there any ancient ways we can draw on? Be pre- be, be close, but be different. But how do we do that? Well, the third thing we see is be encouraged. If we want to be pure and you want to keep yourself separate, that's relatively easy. If you want to be close, but you just want to go along with the crowd, that's relatively easy. But to be close and to be distinct is actually really hard. To be set apart to be sent back in is actually really hard and we need wisdom and we need discernment about how to live how to speak how to show love when to comfort when to challenge when to weep when to laugh when to come alongside when to advise when to stay silent and Jesus was devoted to his father he spent time with his father he often the other thing I was most struck by reading all the gospels this week was how often Jesus just withdrew, it said, to lonely places. If you're going to be sent into the midst of people who desperately need God, you're also going to have to find time when you can withdraw to lonely places. But they weren't lonely for Jesus because he was with his Father. We need guidance. We need to spend time with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We need not just to get into the Bible, but to get the Bible into us. We need the support of Christian friends, people who are around you, people who are supporting you. Not so you can retreat into a holy huddle and put the walls up, but so you have people who are encouraging you and praying for you and supporting you, who can cheer you on as you live for Jesus, wherever he has positioned you, who can pray for you, who can pick you up when you have a difficult week. Jesus wasn't wholly alone. He drew on his father and he had his friends. Don't try and do this on your own. Be encouraged. The people who encourage you, you'll know it comes from the friends. So the people who put courage into you, who strengthen you when you feel weak, who cheer you on when you feel like giving up, who say, no, you're right when it feels like you're the only one swimming in a certain direction. But also be encouraging. Jesus was the only person who lived a completely holy life. He was criticized, he was condemned, he was hated in spite of the fact, because of the fact, he never did anything wrong. Sometimes you'll face challenges not because you failed, but because you're following him. Be encouraged. But also be encouraged because God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. Jesus wasn't intimidated by what was unholy, because he knew he would take all the sin, all the evil in the world into himself, in his very body, that he might become sin in order that he might destroy sin. He might strip sin of its power. And that tells you at least two things. One, it tells you that sin doesn't have the ultimate power in this world. Unholiness does not have the ultimate power in this world. 
Evil does not have the ultimate power in this world. Jesus is stronger. He's taken the sting. He's stripped it away. He's exposed its weakness. But it also tells you that Jesus is committed to your holiness. That he was willing to take all the sin that there ever has been, ever could be, ever will be, into himself in order to make you holy. That's how committed he is to you. He was willing to be separate so that you might not have to be. And Jesus wants your holiness. He's committed to your holiness. He's enabled your holiness. He empowers your holiness. And he is not going to give up on you. And he has come to dwell in you by his spirit. The spirit of Jesus, it says in Acts 16, 7. Because he wants to conform you and shape you into his very likeness. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And that makes a difference when you're on a train, when you're on a bus, when you're chatting to people at work, when you're negotiating with toddlers who are a bit more like terrorists, when you're navigating complex issues. It makes a difference. He's not standing far off, scoring you out of 10. He is within you, committed to making you more holy, giving you wisdom about how to be close, giving you wisdom about how to be different, giving you wisdom about how to shine as a light for him wherever you've been placed. And just think of the difference that might make in our church, in our city, in this nation, as we are shaped by Jesus to be like Jesus. Think how captivating that might be to a world that desperately needs what Jesus has to offer. In his name we pray. Amen.